If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This weekend sees the return of the hit BBC drama Peaky Blinders. And for today's podcast, we've got a discussion about some of the real gangs that inspired the series. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, headed to Manchester to speak to the historian Andrew Davies, who's the author of a number of books on British gangs. So for listeners who might have arrived at the Peaky Blinders through the television show, um, I think it would be great if we could just clarify that the Peaky Blinders and the period they're portrayed as being in in the television show is very different from the real Peaky Blinders of your research. So could we just start by clarifying the time period that we're talking about? Peaky Blinders is a Birmingham term and it seems to have been first coined in the 1890s and It's a term that's used to describe a young man who's assumed to be a gang member and it refers absolutely to his style. It's derived completely from his appearance and it's very much a word that's current in the 1890s. So if we talk about the name then, uh, I think that there's a, um, a conception, at least from the TV show again, that the term Peaky Blinders originates from some uh, razors in, in peat caps or, or elsewhere. What can you tell us about the origins of the name that we know about? So I think the idea that a Peaky Blinder is named after the, the razors in the cap is pretty much a Birmingham urban myth. So there are stories to that effect circulating in local newspapers in Birmingham in the 1930s. But this is something like 30 to 40 years after the fact. So it's very much a myth that grows up in Birmingham in the decades after the Peaky Blinders have effectively died out. So where the term Peaky Blinder really comes from, it's from a choice of headgear. So young men in Birmingham in the 1890s are wearing what at the time was known as a billycock hat. A billycock hat is kind of a bowler hat. It's made out of quite a stiff felt material and it's got quite a wide brim, something like two to three inches wide. And what young men started to do was to mould the front of the brim into quite an elongated peak. They would do that by um, wetting the brim and then putting it in front of a fire and reshaping it with their hands as it dried. And so this created quite a pronounced peak 
one um, observer at the time described it almost as like a spout. And then what they did was they tilted the peak of the cap over one eye. So Peaky Blinder, very literally, is a name given to a young man who's wearing this extraordinary adapted hat and almost blinding himself in one eye by pulling it right down over that side of his forehead. Mm-hmm. So it's a very distinctive style then. And I'd, I'd like to maybe talk about the, the, the fashion and the style of the gangs a little bit later on. But it would also be great to uh, maybe set the scene a bit in terms of the other gangs, because the Peaky Blinders weren't the only gang operating in this time in Birmingham or, or, or the rest of Britain. So in the late decades of the 19th century, there are reports of an increase, if you like, a spike in youthful gang activity across all of the major cities and some of the large towns as well across England. So from around 1870 onwards, there are reports in Birmingham, but also in Manchester and Salford, in Liverpool and London. So there's really quite an alarm in the later decades of the 19th century that young people are increasingly forming gangs in Britain's cities. And also there's quite a sharp increase in reports of fighting with weapons, including knives. Mm-hmm. And what were the, the social or the economic factors that were leading to the, the formation of these gangs at that time? What's really very, very noticeable is that firstly, the gangs are an urban phenomenon. They're very much rooted in the poorer districts of Britain's towns and cities. In my research, I've tried to look quite closely at the occupational backgrounds of young people getting involved in gangs. And what I would say is, without exception, these are young people who, when they're in work, are in manual occupations. So using the labels that are widely applied at the time, we would say, without exception, they're working class young people. I've researched the topic now for a couple of decades, and I've still to find a youthful gang member who I wouldn't categorise, who I wouldn't bracket as being working class. So as I see it, what's really apparent is if you were to draw what we might term a gang map of late 19th century Birmingham or Manchester or London, if we were to put that side by side with a map of unemployment or underemployment and then put it side by side with a map of chronic ill health, if we were to map the prevalence of a disease like tuberculosis, what you would find is that the shaded areas in those three maps will be absolutely identical. And so really um, a gang map of a city like Birmingham in the 1890s would be almost identical to a map showing clusters of unemployment and clusters of disease. So as I see it, young people are joining gangs as partly a quest for excitement, no doubt a quest for belonging as well. It's very much fueled by territorial pride, the desire to show that your street is one not to be messed with and that you know your group of friends are people to be to be shown respect, to be to be feared as they go around um, the city, as they go into the city centre. Interestingly, some of the first reports of a spike in gang activity in Birmingham in the 1870s 
refer to tensions between street gangs that are identified as either English or Irish. And in cities like Birmingham, you've got quite a large um, population since the famine era in the mid-19th century of people not necessarily themselves born in Ireland, but perhaps the children by the late 19th century, the grandchildren of the famine era migrants. From um, reports and local memoirs and so on, it seems that quite a lot of those people were brought up still with quite a distinctive Irish brogue in the way that they spoke. So clearly they're they're learning to speak with what local people would recognise as an Irish accent within the home in Birmingham or in Manchester. And of course, many of those famine era migrants and their and their children and grandchildren were Catholic. And that again marked them out as being part of a religious as well as ethnic minority. So the early reports of gang fighting in Birmingham, which we trace back to the 1870s, appear to have what we might almost understand as a sectarian dimension to them. So some of the reports are very explicitly referring to hostilities between you know, youthful English and, and Irish gangs. There's something very, very similar to that in Manchester in the 1870s, where again, there's um, a sudden emergence of reports of youthful gang fighting. In Manchester, as in Birmingham, that's explained very much in terms of English versus Irish or Protestant versus Catholic. But what seems to be the case is that within something like five to 10 years, that kind of ethnic and religious dimension seems to be eclipsed by much narrower territorial allegiances. So as gangs appear to become more embedded, then really it's it's the street or the immediate locality that seems to become then the, the, the point of identification. So that sectarian dimension, which is reported early on in Birmingham and again in, in Manchester, really seems to fade away by around 1880. And then in the reports of gang activity, which continue right through the 1880s and 1890s, it's very much um, understood and explained in territorial terms rather than religious or ethnic ones. Mm-hmm. So how did these turf wars then um, affect the public and how did the public perceive these gangs? It's interesting if we read reports of gang fights that a lot of the clashes do appear to be very, very targeted. So sometimes they might result from a territorial incursion, a group of young people from one district, quite deliberately, and I would say very provocatively, making their way into a street, um, appearing in a thoroughfare which they know is recognised as the province of a rival gang. That's very much intended and then received as a challenge. So quite a lot of the reported skirmishes follow territorial incursions of that kind. The other very common location for a gang fight, though, would be in the vicinity of city centre beer houses and music halls, because then as now young people are moving into the city centre, particularly on Friday and Saturday nights, they're going in in groups and 
if they're wearing what is the very distinctive um, gang fashion of the day, then again, their appearance in a city centre music hall would be very much seen as a challenge by other groups who are in there. There's a lot of reports, as you would expect, of people being quite terrified if they, as it were, suddenly find themselves in the, in the, in the midst of... Um, a gang fight breaking out. So there are lots and lots of reports of passers-by fleeing, of taking refuge in shop doorways and so on. But in fairness, I think a lot of the violence is targeted. So almost without exception in reports of serious injuries, the victims of those would tend to be young people, overwhelmingly young males, aged between their mid-teens and their early 20s. And can we go into a little bit more what the gangs offered these young men? So was it security, excitement? Uh, what, 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 what was it that drew them specifically to these, to these groups? I think there's an awful lot of kudos riding on confrontations between rival gangs. And it appears that, that the young people who got involved were very much aware of cultivating reputations that could pretty much span a city. So they're very aware that their activities are being reported in the press. So they know that they're being talked about citywide by name or by the name of their their street. And it seems as though a lot of the confrontations are quite deliberately staged so that one gang is seeking to challenge another gang as a means of bolstering their own reputation. So if they can topple a gang that's already very notorious, and that's really quite a kind of mark of distinction for them. So I think there's a lot of kudos attached to this, a lot of status, a sense that for young men to be in a gang is to become known, to be to be recognised. There's a lot of anxiety in commentaries in newspapers that young women are then very attracted to these young men, that there's a sense of risk attached to involvement with them, but there's a degree of glamour and excitement there as well. And it's very, very clear that in moments when a gang fight breaks out, then people um, on the one hand are putting themselves in enormous danger. People are getting seriously wounded and occasionally there are fatalities, um, but people are clearly getting a huge amount of excitement and buzz, if you like, from involvement as well. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned there those markers of pride, that sense of identity that might come with being in a gang. Um, and one way that you've already mentioned they defined themselves was through their fashion. Um, so aside from that shaped billycock hat that they were all identified by, what, what other markers would, would um, identify a Peaky Blinder? Peaky Blinders are distinguished not just by their hats. Um, They're also wearing quite extravagant um, flared trousers known as bell bottoms. So traditionally, this was part of a naval uniform, but they're wearing flares that are very, very wide. Um, They're wearing hobnailed boots, so they're going to create quite a racket if they're moving in large groups around the city. Just as they're proceeding along the road, you would hear them coming think long before you before you see them and they're also wearing brightly colored and patterned scarves so 
there's very much a distinctive uniform which marks out the young person wearing it as a gang member. So other people would instantly know when they see somebody wearing that particular uniform of that somebody associated with a gang. Um, if we can look to the authorities then who were tasked with um, combating these gangs. In the TV show, there's um, one particular police officer who's portrayed as having uh, a vendetta or a mandate, if you like, to clear up the gangs. Was there ever any any movement by the authorities, particularly that, that targeted gangs in this way? The police find it very, very difficult to deal with these outbreaks, in part because, of course, what the police can't do in the 1890s is mobilise reinforcements quickly in the way that they might do today, because today, you know, um, police can move quite large squads of officers around in vans that can get them to a scene of an incident pretty quickly. In the Victorian period, then the only technology available to the police is a bicycle, so you're not able to get large numbers of officers to the scene of an, of an incident quickly. So you're relying on officers, maybe um, patrolling in pairs, but you're relying on officers showing extraordinary bravery, really, to go in and try and disrupt a gang fight that's in flow. There is a lot of concern, as you'd expect, with the risks to the public. Um, the tendency in newspaper reporting is always to write about gang fights as though they're wholly random outbreaks of violence in which everybody passing by is at risk. I think that there's actually a good deal of exaggeration in that reporting in the sense that, you know, for the most part, um, when gangs fight, they're looking to challenge other young people who are exactly like them because that's that's how kudos is is earned. That's not at all how it's reported in the newspapers. So newspapers talk about bloodthirsty mobs of young people. The claim in the in in the press would be that they're going out randomly and indiscriminately stabbing anybody in their path. That obviously causes a huge amount of anxiety and, and no little resentment. So there's a lot of pressure on the police, but the police find it very, very difficult to stamp out this kind of activity, partly because, of course, police officers can never be entirely sure where a territorial dispute might flare up. Um, the police are, of course, patrolling um, the city centre districts on Friday and Saturday nights. There's quite a substantial police presence, but they can't have large numbers of officers outside every beer house and every music hall. And so, of course, gangs become very adept at finding um, moments as well as places to fight where there are no police officers in the immediate vicinity. And gangs are using what they call scouts. They're using lookouts who are posted sometimes at the end of a street um, to give a warning signal if patrolling beat constables come too close. So the gangs are very much aware of the presence of the police and they're finding quite systematic ways of making sure that, that the fights can occur and, and, if you like, can be over and done with before the police can easily get to the scene. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In Manchester and Salford, there is some evidence of young women taking a much more active part in gangs sometimes joining in with quite large-scale gang fights. 
on other occasions being involved in um, gang attacks on the police and also in violent attacks and reprisals against witnesses. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. So if that's a look, a great look at the gang activity uh, at a wider level, um, could you give us an example of maybe uh, an individual or two that you come across during your work that, uh, that you can tell us about? The most notorious incident by far involving um, a Peaky Blinder in Birmingham in, is the killing of a police constable, George Snipe, that took place in the summer of 1897. So this is an incident on a Sunday evening in 1897. Two police constables are patrolling the Hockley Hill district of Birmingham and they encounter a group of young men, probably around half a dozen of them, who are larking about outside a pub. By one of the group's own accounts, they've been out on a drinking spree for the afternoon. They've probably had quite a bit to drink and he later admits that they'd been involved in quite a lot of boisterous behaviour, been drinking, swearing, fighting, really making a bit of a nuisance of themselves. Um, the police officers try and move the group on and at one point they make an arrest. They, they apprehend a 23-year-old whose mates then um, are determined to rescue him from the police. Quite a large crowd gathers at the scene and one of the members of the crowd hurls a brick at one of the two officers and he hits him with such force on the head that his skull is fractured in two places and the police officer dies in hospital several hours later. As you can imagine, this causes absolute consternation in Birmingham for a police officer to be murdered in the course of a routine patrol is, you know, an almost unheard of um, event, really. Um, the police, though, find it very, very difficult um, to bring the perpetrator to justice. Um, a witness at the scene names um, a 19-year-old, a young man called Franklin, as the person who threw the brick and James Franklin is brought to trial in December of 1897 but the trial has to be abandoned when another witness um, comes forward and says no this is not the man who threw the brick and they name someone else um, a 19 year old called George Williams who's known locally as Cloggy Williams to his friends and associates. Cloggy Williams has been on the run for several months at this point. He's actually 
traipsing um, around um, between some of the towns of the Midlands and the Southwest in England, working as a cattle drover. So he's left Birmingham. In effect, he's tried to create a new life for himself. Um, the police distribute something like 5,000 posters of George Williams. These are distributed to every police office in England and Wales. But he, he's at liberty for um, another another month or so before he's apprehended when he risks um, a journey back to Birmingham. Um, he comes back um, late at night one weekend because he wants to see his mother. And at the corner of his home street, an off-duty police officer spots him and apprehends him and takes him into custody. So George Williams, who um, did throw the brick that killed PC Snipe, is then sent for trial in March of 1898. So we're a good while now after the incident has taken place. Um, the jury finds him guilty, but it's quite a controversial verdict because they find him guilty not of willful murder, but of manslaughter. And what that means then is that he can't be sentenced to death. The death penalty can only be imposed if the jury finds um, the verdict guilty of murder. The judge is pretty furious in his um, address to the prisoner before he um, imposes sentence. He makes it very, very plain that really he thinks the jury should have opted for a murder verdict. But the most that he can do is to sentence George William to penal servitude or imprisonment for, for life. And this is an incident which I think makes the Peaky Blinders of Birmingham quite notorious nationally. Um, this is a very it's a very rare episode, this one. It is um, an incident that provokes a quite furious backlash within Birmingham. The view of the local press is absolutely um, to condemn not just the people who have carried out this particular assault, but the entire class of young people that they represent. So the newspapers are full of editorials condemning Peaky Blinders as a class, condemning um, the, the new publicly funded school system, which has been in operation now for a couple of decades. So there's a kind of national anxiety now about how is it that in this age of heightened public education, our young people are behaving like this. There's um, a bit of a critique of working class families and their parenting skills as well. I would say that the backlash to it is really fueled by a kind of moral indignation. There's some recognition, I think, of economic and social inequalities that most historians would say absolutely underpin this activity and explains you know, why it takes place, where it does, and amongst a particular segment of the population. But that's not the dominant theme in responses at the time. There's a clamour for the reintroduction of physical punishments. So under English law in the late 19th century, flogging is still permissible as a punishment, but it's, large, it's largely restricted to people who've been convicted of robbery with violence. So if you're guilty of what today we might term mugging, and maybe what the Victorians might have termed garroting, so if the technical term 
is robbery with violence that you're convicted of, then you can be ordered to be flogged. But if you've been convicted of manslaughter or unlawful wounding or something like that, the judges don't have the authority to order you to be flogged. I think it's a really interesting insight into the values of Victorian society. And I think the Victorian age is one in which, to be honest, I think property was valued above the person. So I think it's absolutely no coincidence that punishments for property offences were generally harsher than they were for crimes of interpersonal violence. I think that simply reflects the value system of the age. It seems from what you've been saying and from your work that this is a very man's world. It's a world for young men. Um, From your work, have you ever come across any female gang members or what was their role um, inside or outside the gangs? It's interesting that the role of young women from what we can tell from the research that we've done so far seems to differ a little bit from city to city. So in the research that's been done on Birmingham by historians like Barbara Weinberger and Philip Goodison, as well as in some of my own work, what we're finding is that gangs were very much male-dominated. The people who were taking part in the fighting and the people who are subsequently appearing in large numbers before the courts are almost all young men. So in Birmingham, one of the anxieties is that the young women attaching themselves to gang members, who are often referred to as as the gang members' moles, to use that kind of term that we're all familiar with, um, the anxiety is that that they're being quite badly treated. Young men who are are violent in their behaviour on the streets as part of a gang are also very violent in their treatment of the young women that they're romantically involved with. And there's an interesting attempt by a local journalist in Birmingham to explore this. And he goes into a street called Summer Lane, which is very notorious in Birmingham. It's one of the classic haunts, if you like, of the Peaky Blinder. And he interviews a young woman who he claims is a Peaky's mole. And she makes really quite a startling um, declaration to him that if your young man doesn't knock you about a bit, then you'd almost wonder, does he really love you? And this is, you know, it's presented as a very bizarre, almost a kind of alternative moral universe where by, you know, a bruise or a black eye is somehow a token of romantic affection. We've seen that kind of claim made by social investigators in other cities. Henry Mayhew, one of the classic social explorers of the Victorian age, claimed to have observed a very similar culture amongst London's costermongers or or street traders in the 1860s. And again, in Mayhew's account, the women of of that social class again saw um, a man's violence as, as a mark that he really cared, that he was really emotionally attached to her. So in Birmingham, and I would say the same very much applies in Liverpool, it seems as though gangs were absolutely male-dominated, that, you know, the business of the gang was was really the young men's business and the women who are present then very much uh, playing that auxiliary role of the moles on the fringes of the gangs. It's quite interesting, though, in Manchester and Salford, there is some evidence of young women taking a much more active part in gangs, 
sometimes joining in with quite large-scale gang fights, on other occasions being involved in um, gang attacks on the police and also in violent attacks and reprisals against witnesses. And it's quite interesting if we look at the nature of the labour market in Manchester and Salford, um, these are cities with a quite a significant textiles industry. So there are a lot of young working class women in regular factory employment in Manchester and Salford. They're used to moving around the cities in large groups as they're coming home from work and so on. There are very visible presence on the streets. And they've also got quite a lot of autonomy as young women who are independent wage earners. So even if they're still living in the parental home, they've got a regular weekly wage. Their parents are allowing them to hold back a portion of that as what they would term spends. So they've got a bit of disposable income. They're enjoying the music halls and to some extent city centre beer houses on the weekends same as the young men. And so it seems as though there's a greater economic and social independence for young women in Manchester and Salford that is then reflected in a more active and dynamic part in the gangs in Manchester and Salford than we've been able to trace so far in cities like Birmingham or Liverpool. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned uh, several locations as we've been talking, um, Glasgow, London, Manchester, Birmingham. Is there any um, evidence or examples of um, gangs from different cities uh, in any alliances or have they any interactions at all there or is that completely an extrapolation? There's no evidence that I can think of for certainly for the 1890s that would point to any um, travel by gangs from one city to another or any kind of alliance between them. As I see it, these are very, very localised phenomena. So certainly the conflicts in Birmingham would span a fair radius out from the city centre into districts like Aston, which is not technically part of the city of Birmingham at that time. So things are spanning over a conurbation, but they're not really crossing over from one city to another. The only thing that would give even a hint of that is that sometimes names which originate in one city are then picked up by young people elsewhere. I can only imagine that they've read about the activities, for example, of gangs in Liverpool, where in the 1880s, um, gang members there are calling themselves High Rippers. And there's a report um, several years later from Sunderland in the northeast of England of young people who formed a high rip gang in Sunderland. Now, I think we can only guess that they've read about their counterparts in Liverpool and they've decided to adopt that label. Generally, though, and I thought this was quite interesting, the, the, the labels are locally specific. So in Manchester and Salford and Manchester and Salford is a single conurbation divided by the river Irwell. In Manchester and Salford, gang members are known as scuttlers. And it seems that this is a term which originates amongst um, quite young boys. Um, It's a term which boys themselves use to describe the participants in a fight between boys from one street and then those from the next street along. And it seems that it's quite young boys who coined the term. And then 
it's it's picked up by older lads in their teens and early 20s. But Scuttler is then very much a Manchester and Salford term. In Birmingham, the equivalent term in the 1870 is slogger. And so if you're a member of a gang, you would be referred to as a slogger or taking part in, in a slogging gang. And that term is still current in, in Birmingham in the late 1880s. And then when Peaky Blinder is coined in the 1890s, that becomes a new label, very much in, inspired by the headgear. So in Liverpool, the, the term High Ripper is coined in the 1880s. And then most famously in the London case, the term hooligan is popularised in the 1890s. And of course, it's probably no accident that it's you know London as the city dominating the press in the 1890s. It's, it's that London term which both gains national currency and then has the longevity. So you've already mentioned the gangs of Glasgow and as we understand it, uh, series five of the Peaky Blinders fairly soon will um, see some of the gang members of Glasgow. Uh, you've written uh, you've written a lot about the gangs of Glasgow. What can you tell us about these these people? I think Glasgow is a really interesting city and Glasgow appears to have a more continuous history of gang formation and gang conflict than any of the major cities in England. So I wrote a book called City of Gangs, which was um, a phrase used by a local newspaper really to lament Glasgow's notoriety in the 1930s. So whereas in the major cities in England, the reports of street gangs and youthful knife crime diminish um, in the decade before the First World War. In Glasgow, the gang conflicts persist. They appear in Glasgow to be underpinned by a much more virulent religious and ethnic sectarianism. So the two football teams in Glasgow, Rangers and Celtic, are, of course, famously Protestant and Catholic. And there's also, um, I think, a much greater um, religious friction in Scottish society than in English society in the 1920s and 30s. So Glasgow has some quite large-scale and well-organised sectarian gangs in the interwar period. The most famous of these, the Billy Boys, are a Protestant street gang from the east end of Glasgow led by Billy Fullerton. And Billy Fullerton is an interesting character. He's um, very much a street fighting man, but he's also quite adept at marshalling the Billy Boys in things like religious processions. So he's using church parades and parades of the Loyal Orange Order, really, as an opportunity to march his gang through what are identified as Catholic thoroughfares in Glasgow. So religion and sectarian differences are still a pretext for gang violence in Glasgow in the 1920s and 30s in a way that we're not really seeing in, you know, comparable forms in cities like Manchester or Birmingham. Fullerton's also um, very adept at playing the newspapers. So he's quite fond of giving interviews to newspapers. He likes to portray himself as a local celebrity, somebody who's left the world of the gangs behind and gone straight. And of course, in, in later decades, we have the craze in London very much presenting themselves in a similar vein. So if Billy Fullerton makes an appearance in 
Peaky Blinders, it'll be really interesting for us as historians and to see how he's depicted on screen. Mm-hmm. So the Peaky Blinders, they do decline. Um, what can you tell us about when that happens and, and what what's that attributed to? So historians who've looked at the decline of the Peaky Blinders have dated this to the years really just after the turn of the century. So there's a lot of concern in the late 1890s, but then there are far, far fewer reports of Peaky Blinders in the 1900s, in that decade immediately before the First World War. And interestingly, we've got a very similar periodization in Manchester and Salford, where there are reports of conflicts between so-called Scotland gangs, which span the three decades from the early 1870s, again, to the era more or less around 1900. And it does seem that in the decade before the First World War, this kind of gang fighting diminished. And there are a number of possible explanations for this. One of the things that commentators notice is that in increasing numbers, um, young people are turning their attention to football in the first decade of the 20th century. Football's growing very, very rapidly as a mass spectator sport. So it's drawing people from across Birmingham or across Manchester together into huge kind of communal sporting crowds but the other thing that i think is really important is football as if you like a a grassroots activity so there is a host of football teams emerging at district or often in fact at street level and in manchester this is very much fostered by the working lads club movement this is a movement set up in part deliberately to combat um the the gangs The aim there is to set up recreational clubs to bring um, younger boys in off the streets and to, if you like, um, involve them in a kind of club ethos and organised recreational activities. Where the clubs are, are really important, I think, is they feed this huge appetite for football and other sports, whether um, cricket, boxing, athletics rugby and so one of the things that seems to happen is that the conflict um, between gangs and the kind of territorial or street pride associated with gangs is to some extent eclipsed by contests between football teams and other kinds of sports teams the other thing that is really a huge development in that first decade in the 20th century is the growth of cinema And cinema becomes absolutely enormously popular amongst young working class people, young males as well as um, females, many of whom it's reported by the 1900s are going to the cinema three or even four nights a week. And the chief constables of cities like Birmingham and Manchester are absolutely delighted about this because, of course, what that's doing is it's corralling young people in very large numbers indoors you know so to some extent the um, street life of the 1890s um, is quietened to some extent by the growth of cinema Um, whilst the chief constables of cities like Birmingham and Manchester absolutely welcome this the people who are really not happy about it are the publicans 
And the publicans are very, very clear that their trade is quite badly affected by the growth of cinema. And of course, a reduction in alcohol consumption is also going to manifest in a decline in violence because so much of the violence that is witnessed in the streets of the late Victorian city is alcohol fueled. That when when cinema begins to displace the public house as the kind of cornerstone of, of people's kind of leisure and sociability, then again, I think that has some interesting and unanticipated kind of side effects in terms of gradual changes in people's behaviour. It's very, very difficult to see um, a judicial clampdown as explaining the the decline of gang activity. What we can't do is we can't identify a change in police practice or an increased severity in sentencing. So to my understanding, at least, um, we can't look to history to make the argument that, you know, greater police numbers or stiffer punishments are an antidote to gangs and knife crime. It's very, very clear in the 1880s and 1890s that the authorities are using all the powers at their disposal. Um, It doesn't seem to be something that we can attribute to a law and order clampdown. I think that there are wider changes in social life. There are bigger changes in people's pattern of behaviour. The other thing that I wonder, and I think for scholars in cultural studies who've worked on youth style and and fashion, I think it's very apparent that one of the things that really um, is important for young people is always to be part of something new, always to be part of something that their generation has pioneered and which, you know, if you like, is a kind of a notoriety that they've earned for themselves. So I wonder if by the 19 hundreds and 1910s you know Peaky Blinders in Birmingham or Scuttlers in Manchester are really starting to look quite outdated and by the early 20th century certainly by the 1920s young people in Britain's cities are very very much looking to Hollywood for new models of glamour and style so If somebody um, in Peaky Blinder garb had paraded the streets of Birmingham in the 1920s, they'd have looked a bit ridiculous, really. They'd have been 20 or 25 years behind the times. You know, they'd probably have looked like a comic turn from a variety theatre rather than, you know, an imposing figure from the city's gangland. So by the 1920s and 30s, Peaky Blinders in Birmingham Scuttlers in Manchester, very much a thing of the past. The the fashions have changed entirely. The patterns of behaviour witnessed amongst young people are are different. The inspiration for their their fashion is now coming from across the Atlantic. Um, And Peaky Blinders and Scuttlers are figures now in local folklore. They're not figures that you'd encounter on the streets. That was Andrew Davies. His book, City of Gangs, Glasgow and the Rise of the British Gangster, is available now, published by Hodder. Series 5 of Peaky Blinders starts on BBC One this Sunday, the 25th of August, at 9pm. 
You can also read Andrew's feature on the real Peaky Blinders in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is in shops now. And if you head to our website, historyextra.com, you'll also find another feature by Andrew focusing more specifically on the Billy Boys gang. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Serhi Plocky will be speaking about the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster. <laughs>